Good morning, everyone. Hope that uh, everyone's week is treating them well. We're going to get right into the parsha because uh, the current events are so compelling that uh, it's the natural go-to. Uh, but we're going to address the current events and our opening remarks. This week, we are discussing Parshas Lech Lecha. And the title for today's class is, What Would You Do? The month of Cheshvan is generally sponsored and anonymously sponsored in honor and with gratitude to Rosh HaYeshiva, Harav Yochanan, and Rebetzin Rivka Zweig for their unique contribution to Torah learning and meaningful impact to Jewish life. May our learning bring true unity, shalom, and healing to our entire Jewish family worldwide. This week's class is dedicated to the safety of Achinu Kalbeis Yisrael and to the immediate return of all who were kidnapped and to the complete healing of all those wounded and to the speedy comfort of all those suffering. May Hashem avenge all the evil planned and committed by our enemies upon their supporters. In general, I am recommending that we say a tefillah like that before and after learning or throughout our day. And the tefillah that I have in mind, for example, right now is may our learning be dedicated to the safety of our IDF soldiers, <clears throat> and as well, of course, to the safety of Achinu Kalbeis Israel everywhere in the world, and to the immediate return of all who were kidnapped, and to the complete healing of all those that were wounded, to the speedy comfort of all those suffering. May Hashem avenge all the evil committed and planned by our enemies upon them and their supporters. I put that in the transcript so that everyone who wants can copy that for themselves. And in my opinion, say it before learning, say it before davening, multiple times a day, we need to say the words, this needs to be on our mind, the weapon of the Jewish people, more than anything, is tefillah. There is no doubt that we and humanity are in a crisis, as the grotesque and unbearable ugliness and evil of many people becomes more and more revealed, we are being vividly awakened to the truth regarding some people's intentions and to the human capacity for depravity, wretchedness, and amorality. That means no moral compass whatsoever. It seems simply unconscionable that human beings, actual people, could advocate for Hamas and their objectives. Nonetheless, between the large pro-Palestine demonstrations and the silence of so many in so many critical arenas, such as Ivy League colleges, major media outlets, large corporations, and so many other examples, we Jews are confronted by the reality of 21st blatant anti-Semitism at its peak since the Holocaust. So there are two major questions that require immediate attention by all Jews. Number one, how should we Jews deal with the fact that we are all in more danger today than we were just 18 days ago? Number two, is there anything we can do to help stem the rising tide of hatred against us? It should be completely obvious that Jews in all parts of the world today are in more danger than we were before the unspeakable 
Hamas atrocities just 18 days ago. News articles have already been written how Jews are flocking to take gun training and self-defense classes. A friend of mine here in Florida commented to me yesterday, now I find myself looking over my shoulder. Unfortunately, I have to agree with that. Here is an excerpt of an article from the Free Press publication written by Barry Rice and Oliver Wiseman and posted today, today's date. Here it is. Last Tuesday, Free Press staffers arrived for work in New York to discover anti-Semitic graffiti sprayed on hallway walls outside of our office. F Israel and F Jews were the messages. The graffiti was found on three floors of the building, as well as in the freight elevator. At the time of this writing, the police have not identified any suspects, but they are investigating it as a hate crime. Since Hamas's October 7th massacre, a wave of anti-Semitic hate, from physical violence to harassment, has affected Jews across the globe. So the vandalism in the building where some of us work, while vile, was hardly a bolt out of the blue. It also pales in comparison to what many Jews in this country and across the world have experienced in recent days. A synagogue in Berlin was firebombed. In Paris, the door of an elderly Jewish couple's apartment was burned. Theirs was the only one in the building to display a mezuzah. According to London police, there were 218 anti-Semitic hate crimes reported in the capital between October 1st and 18th, a 1,350% increase over the same period last year. Mobs across the world have gathered to cheer for Hamas's barbarism, and as we have reported, Jews have been intimidated and demeaned in American cities and on university, U.S. university campuses in recent weeks. If there's anything more ulcer-inducing than the rise in explicit Jew hatred, it is either the denial of it or the downplaying of it. That's the excerpt from the article. So that's what we are all very clearly up against. The Torah certainly requires a person to protect oneself and one's life. As such, there is no doubt that we should all be choosing prudent courses of action to be more careful and ready to deal with the rise in danger. If anyone would like to have a conversation about that regarding sensible measures, please send me a text message or an email or contact the yeshiva office to arrange for a phone call. In other words, happy to talk about it, but that's not the subject of today. In addition to taking action to the rise in physical danger, we must also take action to dealing with our rising psychological and emotional anxiety, and to the overall trauma that our nation has suffered and continues to experience in this extremely difficult period. Of course, so many of us are experiencing vastly different situations. I paint the following pictures simply to continue to raise consciousness, but we are going to deal with the questions that I posed before, which is, what is the way to deal with this anxiety and emotions over all of this, and also what, in fact, can be done, if anything, to stem the rising tide. 
I literally shudder that some of us are hostages. Some of us have been victimized and are no longer. Some of us have experienced unimaginable heartbreaking and soul-searing losses. Some of us are currently fighting on the front lines. Some of us are behind enemy lines. Some of us are carrying the burdens of IDF decision-making. Some of us are lobbying politicians. Some of us are trying to help trauma victims. Some of us are raising funds and supplies to fight the war. Some of us are much further removed from all that and trying to live our lives with more dedication to self-improvement and more appreciation of our blessings. Hopefully, we are all davening with increased intensity and frequency. As I mentioned above, we should all be praying for the safety of our IDF soldiers and the safety of Achinu Kal Beis Yisrael, etc., as I mentioned. Normally, we analyze several sentences from the weekly parsha with lots of attention to very specific details of the verses. Today, instead of being very didactic, so to speak, on the sentences, on the verses, we will do a major overview of the Parsha, because by looking at an overview of Parsha's Lech Lecha, we will gain a tremendous amount of insight into our two above-mentioned questions, namely dealing with our heightened emotional and mental anxiety and dealing with the rising tide of revealed hatred against us. We will raise certain key points in connection with every topic that we will deal with in the discussion of our answers. So here's the Parsha overview. This is what's called the test of Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha, Lech Lecha literally translates as go for yourself. So Hashem told Avram to travel and that Hashem would make him wealthy and famous and bless him extensively if he goes and follows Hashem, so to speak, to the land that Hashem will show him. What's so difficult about this test, especially when the rewards seem vast? Hashem promises Avram a lot of great things, children and wealth and blessing and the land that he's going to show him. That's the first part of the Parsha. Then we find out that there's a famine in Eretz Canaan, and Avraham and Sarah need to descend to Egypt, and we learn about their Egyptian experience. Why did Hashem bring about this eventuality of the famine? And what are we, the Jewish people, meant to learn from this story? Okay, so Avraham went to Eretz Israel, and he traveled to Egypt because there was a famine. He made a fabrication about Sarah being his wife, and Paro took Sarah and eventually suffered because of it. What are we meant to learn from this entire story? Then we have Avraham's separation from Lot and his subsequent waging of a world war to free him from captivity. So the Torah relates that Lot traveled up from Egypt with Avraham. There was a fight between the shepherds of Avraham and the shepherds of Lot. Avraham begged Lot to separate as they were men that are brothers. They separate. Lot chooses Sidon for the new habitation for his family. And then a little while later, we find out about four kings who were subjugating five kings for 12 years. In the 13th year, those five kings rebelled. In the 14th year, the four kings came to subdue those four kings. 
those, sorry, those five kings, the four powerful ones came to subdue the five. And in that war, Lot was taken kidnapped. Kidnap. He was taken as a captive. And then we find that Abraham wages a world war, apparently to save Lot. Why does Abraham take such drastic action, which includes endangering his own 318 men, right? He wasn't involved in the war seemingly, to save the quote-unquote wicked Lot. What's Avram doing? After that, the parasha does relate the covenant between the parts. In Hebrew, we call it the bris, the covenant between the different parts of animals. And that's an allusion, according to the rabbis, to the not only the bonded relationship between Hashem and Avraham and the inheritance of Eretz Yisrael, but also it's an allusion to the four exiles that the Jewish people are going to experience, ultimately, of course, with the Jewish people emerging victorious and Hashem you know, bringing about the ultimate future. So the question is, why were the future exiles at that time and today's current exile and all of our problems a foundational component of a treaty that Hashem makes with Avraham. I understand if Hashem wants to promise Avraham Eretz Yisrael. I understand if Hashem wants to tell Avraham that, you know, they have a permanent bonded relationship. But why, in fact, is that part of the treaty that there will be this future suffering? The uh, Lapid Eish, the pillar of fire that walked between the parts, represented Hashem and the tremendous darkness that descended on Avram and that he needed to beat away vultures, that represents the evil exiles. Why in order to have a permanent relationship with Hashem, do we have to talk about evil and darkness and vultures? And lastly, in the parasha, we have the covenant of circumcision. Now, is it not interesting that circumcision, which today as we know, is one of the most important observances that we have as a Jewish people. And in fact, the Torah uses the word bris or covenant 13 times in connection with the mitzvah of circumcision. Why wasn't that one of the first things that Hashem did with Avraham? Tell him about the covenant of circumcision. Instead, we know that Avraham is 99 years old when Hashem tells him of the covenant of circumcision. It's just prior to the birth of Yitzchak, but it's after the birth of Ishmael. It's after the covenant between the parts. It's after the war of the four kings and the five kings. It's after the Lech Lecha journey, which is the beginning of the parsha. Why is circumcision towards the end, seemingly, of the culmination of the relationship between Avraham and Hashem, and not earlier? So I'd like to begin by painting a very simple picture that we all have to bear in mind today, and it certainly was the case back then, and there's an incredible way that the Torah references this concept in the story of Lot being taken captive and Avraham's response. The Torah tells us from the beginning that mankind descended into chaos and depravity, and the world became destroyed. And Hashem brings a flood as a result of the evil and immorality of mankind. That's the reality of what happened. After that, we have something called the Tower of Babel, 
where mankind as a whole wanted to wage war with God. And that caused tremendous dispersion among mankind and people were spread to all corners of the earth. After that, we find the emergence of Abraham. So what is the Torah really telling us by painting this picture? And the answer is that mankind is either going to succeed or they're going to fail. And it depends on one thing and one thing only. And this is the truth about anti-Semitism and it is the absolute root of anti-Semitism. I'm very convinced of this. And no matter what anybody says and whatever speech you've written or heard or watched or video, I'm confident that this is the root of anti-Semitism. The people that are evil, the people that want to deny the existence of God want one thing, power and the ability to do whatever they want to do in the world. Now, the character in the Torah that best represents this, actually, from the beginning, is not Adam, which is what may, many of us are thinking, although certainly there is some of that in Adam and Chava's original sin. The real character to represent that and to wage war with God is Nimrod, which means rebellious one, and that he was a hunter in front of Hashem, i.e. he was a warrior against Hashem, and he sought global domination. The first line of defense against getting God out of the world are the Jews. The people who want to claim all power and control for themselves want God out of the picture. And the first people that all people who want that need to remove are the Jews. So somebody asked me today, well, maybe it's about the jealousy. Oh, yeah, certainly jealousy is a part of it. But the key is that they just want everything for themselves. And what the Torah is telling us very clearly in the story of Lot being taken captive is that Lot, despite his desire to separate from Avraham to enjoy the quote-unquote good life, he was still considered a brother of Avraham. And guess who came to tell Avraham that Lot was taken captive? A survivor from the flood. Hapalit, the Torah tells us, the survivor. The one who escaped the flood came to tell Avraham, hey, you know what's going on in the world? There's a global domination conquest pursuit that's happening. These four kings, they want to rule the world. And what they're doing in order to rule the world is they're getting rid of all monotheists, of which Lot was one of them. To which Avraham responds, that's a war I have to fight. And now that we see that clearly in the sentence, right, because we have the one who survived the flood, who knows that the world was destroyed and saw it firsthand, and it was destroyed because of the depravity of mankind, that person came to tell Avraham that there's a global conquest at hand, and the idea is to get rid of the monotheists and to take over the world. And that's, by the way, an explicit teaching in the Midrash where Lot represents monotheism just like Avraham, 
And that's why Nimrod, who, by the way, his name is also Amraphel, one of the four kings. Amraphel says Rashi because he said, fall into the furnace. Amar Pol, he said, fall into the furnace. He's one of these four kings. He said, I'm going to begin with Lot and I'm going to finish with Abraham. But what the people of the world don't realize is I'm going to begin with the Jews and I'm going to destroy anyone else who doesn't serve me. That is why it always starts with the Jews. As my good friend, Dr. Charles Small, always likes to quote Elie Wiesel, it starts with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. And that's why Rabbi Lord Dr. Jonathan Sachs, may his memory be blessed, said that the Jews are the first early warning signal that evil is about to take hold. We're just the canary in the coal mine. And that's what the world has to realize. So we go back to Lech Lecha. What is the Lech Lecha test? The Lech Lecha test is life is not about your personal security and safety. You are going to live a life where you're going to be on a mission. And I'm going to send you on that mission and you're going to have to go wherever it is that I tell you to go. I'm not going to tell you where to go. Wherever I tell you to go, that's where you're going to go. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you money. And I'm going to give you fame. Because you have a global mission in front of you to rectify the world. Those things are not rewards for us to sit on our laurels and enjoy life. Those things are rewards to take care of the godly mission that Hashem entrusted Avraham. Go for yourself. It's going to be good for you because you're going to live a life of purpose and you are going to get rewards from it. But the goal and the real test is not, you know, can you leave your the, the birthplace of uh, at your birthplace and your father's home and the land that you know? The real test is, can you live a life of doing whatever it is I tell you to do with the gifts that I'm going to give you to accomplish your mission? Are you going to do that? Well, let's see what happens when you get to the land of Israel. And then you need to leave there. And there's a famine in the land. And then you go to Egypt and your wife is taken kidnapped by the local king, Pharaoh. How are you going to react to that? What's your message going to be to the world at that time? Does Abraham give up? Does he accept all the gifts that are given to him and say, you know what? Uh, it was nice being married to you, Sarah, but I really don't want to deal with the danger. No. He stands up and says, this is really my wife. And Paro suffered the consequences because of it. And he's exiled from Egypt. Paro sends him out. He says, okay, so now I'm out of Egypt. Moving on. And then he has to recognize, yeah, I live with another monotheist, and he's been traveling with me. And so I think we're aligned. But apparently not so much, because he's willing to let his shepherds steal. And I'm not. That can't be the person with whom I work. We have to separate. Despite the fact that he thinks and says that there is a God, he cannot be my partner. We have to separate. But as we've already explained, when he's in danger for knowing that there's a God and accepting that there's a God for whatever it does in Lot's life, Avraham has to come to the rescue, not of Lot, but of the world. Because a world without God is a world that cannot last. That's the message of the flood. That's the message of the generation of the dispersion. And Avraham and the Jewish people take 
that responsibility. That is our job. So the answer to the question, how should we handle the psychological, emotional anxiety, the trauma that has been and is ongoing occurring every day in our lives? We have to remember this was our job from the beginning. And maybe we haven't been doing it so well the last 75 years since the Holocaust. Maybe we have been sitting on our laurels. Maybe we've been insular. Maybe we haven't cared enough for the Jews that are assimilating. Maybe we haven't, as Jews, cared enough about the evil that exists in the rest of the world. Maybe we haven't stood for truth the way that Avram Avinu stood for truth. Maybe we haven't expressed the caring for other human beings the way that Avram Avinu expressed caring for other human beings. But make no mistake about it. Sure, Avram Avinu cares and he does tremendous chesed, but he has zero tolerance for kicking God out of the world. He wages a world war. He kills thousands and thousands of people in order to rid the world of those people that won't change from their amorality and from their denial of God. Simple as that. If they are looking to take over the world, says Avram Avinu, that we have to squash and get rid of. And not only that, we can even be in alliance with people that also are wicked. I don't imagine that the king of Sidon was particularly righteous. But he was on the side of the people that were not seeking global domination. And so Avram Avinu was fine to save them and even work with them if necessary and make a deal with them. With the, you know, King of Sodom wanted to give Avram Avinu money. Avram Avinu didn't want that except to pay for, you know, his troops that put the skin in the game. Okay, that's not a person that we have to destroy. We don't just go around destroying people because they don't accept that there's a God. But we absolutely have to destroy people that are trying to dominate the world because ultimately what they're trying to do is to kill everyone else in the world so that they can take and do whatever they want in the world. And so just looking at an overview of the Parsha, we see very, very clearly that the mission of Avramavinu is to take God's charge to bring good to the world and to make sure that the world is full of a place of blessed people and not cursed people, right? We have to, you have to think very carefully. When Hashem says to Avram, I will bless those that bless you and those that curse you, I will curse. You know, I don't know about you folks, but I, I just don't want to be on anybody's radar. Don't give me a blessing. Don't give me a curse. Hashem says, Avram, I'm sorry to use this term, Jew boy, you got no choice. You're either going to be blessed or you're going to be cursed. It's one of those two things. There's no run and hide and make pretend like you can live life below the radar. If you partner with me, I will bless those that bless you and all the good people of the earth will be blessed through you. But you know what's so amazing? It's not per se the good people of the earth. It's all the families of the earth. All those people who believe in family values, all those people who believe in the idea of marriage and children 
and building a future for the next generation. Those are the people that we partner with. And those are the people that are going to be blessed through you, Avraham Avinu, for taking responsibility for the world. But we don't have any choice. Make no mistake about it. Partnering with Hashem means it's a major, major fail or it's a major, major success. And that's why the covenant between the parts necessarily includes the messages of the four exiles. The rabbis actually tell us that there are four kinds of evil that exist in the world. And they are reflected in the sentence in Parshas Bereshis. When the Torah talks about creation, before the creation of light, the Torah tells us that the land was tohu vavohu v'choshech al sahom. The land was shockingly empty. It was chaotic. There was nothing in it. It was a void, vohu. And there was darkness and there was tremendously deep waters. The rabbis explained that those four descriptions, tohu, vohu, choshech, and tohom, they actually relate to the four exiles of the world. There are four types of exile in the world. There are four types of evil in the world. For another time, we can analyze what they are, which countries uh, to whom they correspond. The home right now we'll just mention is an endless, seemingly endless depth, which is the final of the four, which is what we seem to be in. Everybody wants to know about Mashiach and when is he coming? And we've been asking that question now for a couple thousand years. So it's seemingly endless, but it will end. Every time you see the number four, what you're talking about is the four directions of the world and the ability to escape Hashem four different ways, also known as the four evil forces in the world or the four exiles. And so therefore, a covenant with Hashem that says that your future is going to be one of major and total success has to deal with the four forces of evil in the world. That's why the covenant between the parts talks about the darkness and the vultures and represents the four exiles. Because there is no avoiding the evil of the world. The reason we have so much anxiety is because we tried in the past 75 years to lull ourselves into a false sense of security. Many of us Jews believe that if we build enough Holocaust memorials, and talk about the Holocaust enough, it'll never happen again. Well, that didn't work. God forbid it should be worse than it is today. Chas I'm not saying that. But clearly, as we know, anti-Semitism is on the rise, despite all the Holocaust memorials and discussions that we've had. So we have to understand that the reason for the anti-Semitism is not because people forgot that people can become inhumane, amoral, and vicious, vindictive, cruel, less than human being type creatures. The reason that it exists is because people want control and they want to gain whatever power that they can in the world and they want to kick God out of the world. That's why it exists. There is no avoiding that truth. So as much as we try to anesthetize ourselves so that will never happen again. And even it seems that the IDF was lulled into a false sense of security that Hamas would never try to do what it successfully did, even though, of course, that could also have been worse. We should never discount the miracles that did happen, etc. But it was all an effort 
to, in our minds, escape the truth of the evil that exists and our responsibility to help mankind not become that evil or not succumb to that evil. That is our job. If we don't do our job, that is what can and does happen. And that's been prophesied and it's prophesied here in the story and the covenant between the parts. So as a concluding thought to all of this, well, first let me just answer the second question and we'll go to the concluding thought. The second question is, what can we do to stem the rise of anti-Semitism and hatred against us? So obviously there are people that we will not change their minds because they've already lost their minds. There's nobody to talk to. We've all experienced that. But there is hope to represent correct ideology of what a Jew stands for and to explain very clearly to people, what would you do if your child or you were kidnapped or killed? What would you do? Because it starts with understanding that that is what's coming. You might not like to face it, but the Holocaust wasn't only a death knell for six million Jews. What if the Aryan race had attained power? Who would be left in the world besides some of the Aryan race? And I say some of the Aryan race because they're destined to destroy each other too, because that's what evil does. Can anybody, God forbid, imagine what everybody is afraid of? An alliance between Iran and Russia and China? Right? What's going to happen then? And do you think if, God forbid, that really came to fruition and somehow whatever they succeeded, God forbid, God forbid, infinity times over, do you think that they were three would remain happily ever after and not then seeking to attack each other? That's not what evil does. It implodes upon itself because everybody is trying to be on top. And there can be no shalom when everybody is power hungry and pleasure seeking and ego driven and there is no God and no morality. That's what the world needs to understand. So what can we do as successfully as we can, as vocally as we can, and as clearly as we can articulate, we need to express that yes, Jews are the target because Jews have responsibility and our responsibility is to let everyone know that the world will not survive when genuine evil is allowed to thrive. And everybody is a target at that point. That's how we have to learn to talk. I know that plenty of people won't listen. There are plenty of people that have lost their mind already. But we see in our parsha that when you can form an alliance with the five kings that are being oppressed, when their countries are being targeted, you can form an alliance and fight alongside those people. And unfortunately, we have to do that. But I also just, you know, in the concluding thought, I want to make it very clear that the goal is not to fight. We Jews always celebrate not needing to have to fight. Always. That's why we never celebrate, even when we've had to fight, the day of war or the victory. 
we actually celebrate the day after when we get to rest. This is what the Megillah describes, and that's always how we do Jewish celebrations because we don't enjoy the job of getting rid of evil. We wish it didn't have to happen. So that's the concluding thought. God willing, we can avert a third world war. God willing, we Jews will handle the threat that's in our immediate doorstep correctly. And we will hopefully successfully communicate with the other people in the world of the need to do this, enlisting their help and form strategic alliances that we can. But if we have to fight, we do. But the main, main way that the parsha finishes, which is ultimately the message that we have to understand, is that our best weapon, of course, in times of trouble is tefillah, but the ultimate goal is to live a bonded relationship with Hashem as represented as by bris milah. Bris milah is the mitzvah that allows a Jew to really transform himself and to become a role model of godliness in the world. And if we, as a nation, would be better role models of godliness in the world, we would be able to more successfully spread good and help the rest of the world to rid itself of evil. So that's a long-term mission, not easy to accomplish. We've talked about it many times in this class. I think that um, you know, the way I'd like to leave this concluding thought is as follows. Unfortunately, many of the Jews who were killed and are still suffering terribly, our brothers and sisters, were not religious Jews, but they are our brothers and sisters. And I think we have to understand two sobering thoughts about that situation. Number one, the rest of the world does not discriminate between the observant Jew and the non-observant Jew. Number two, we care about those people now. Were we caring about them before? Did we recognize our connection to them before this happened? And that's what we need to hold ourselves accountable to today. We religious Jews, we learned Jews, we Jews that study Torah, whatever level or place in the spectrum that we put ourselves, are we truly understanding of the need to love and care for every Jew that we possibly can and give them a way to come close to the Torah and pursue Shalom with them? Are we living that reality? And to me, if we can take that message seriously, that can be a tremendous leap forward to not only meriting salvation from Hashem that we need, but also to bringing the right kind of good into the world and helping the world to remove evil, which is ultimately the evil, as we know, is about falsehoods, it's about false ideologies, and ultimately about power struggle and power grab. Questions or comments? The class, Kima. Thank you, Rita. I agree with you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So good to be with you. Question or comments from anyone?
Yes, please, Mrs. Kainoff, if you just unmute, that would be great. I don't really have any questions. I wish I did. It's just that it's such a clear and, you know, sobering message. I just want to thank you for presenting it in a, such a coherent way. And uh, wish I wish it wasn't so. <laughs> I wish I did have questions, but unfortunately, it was too clear. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the comments. Yeah. Okay, we should do good work together. Continue. Anyone else? Well, we're good for today. Okay, so I think we'll pause here. I don't have any comments on the chat. I look forward to uh, continuing to learn together and fighting the good fight together. Have a Amen. safe and easy week, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi. You Thank too. Thank you, Rabbi.